And we're thinking of being right with God. That is, coming before God with his omniscience, knowing all that is in our hearts, and being declared righteous by God. One prominent uh, musician had a court case last week. Uh, He was nervous about this case. He he announced that he would uh, resign from his musical creations if the court case went against him. He was greatly relieved when the judge acknowledged that he was in the right in this instance, that he had no case to answer, that there was no charge could be sustained against him. And this is the idea here in a far greater degree. We come before God. He examines us in Jesus Christ, the Savior, and he declares that in his sight we are righteous. In this fourth chapter of Romans, which I've advocated is a neglected chapter by us, we know chapter 3 well, chapter 1 well, chapter 5, 6, 7, 8 well, chapter 4 is neglected by us. But it should not be because the, the writer here is supporting his argument made at the end of chapter 3 that we are made right with God by faith alone. The apostle goes on in chapter 4 to argue his point, to look at ways that perhaps we might depend on or embrace to be made right with God. So this chapter is really important for us in understanding that crucial teaching of the Bible, how you and I, sinful though we are, can be declared right by God in heaven. This particular section, this paragraph in verses 13 to 17, looks at this promise given to Abraham that he would be the heir of the world. We have seen in this chapter that the apostle has looked at our good works and asked, do they contribute to us being declared right by God? And he argues from David and Abraham that they do not. He has looked at the sacrament, the Old Testament sacrament in verses 9 to 12 of circumcision and has asked the question, does the sacrament for us, baptism or the Lord's Supper, contribute to us being right with God? And the apostle answers from this paragraph that it does not. We'll see this evening that the apostle looks at the area of sight of visibility, of evidences around us in our circumstances or in our world? Do they contribute to us being right with God? And he answers, they do not. And so in this paragraph, the writer, as we spoke to the children, is looking at the subject of law-keeping, keeping God's law. Does that contribute to us being right with God? And in this paragraph, which is quite complex and will require your most powerful brain cells to follow this this morning, the writer once again argues that we are made right with God by faith in Jesus alone without keeping his law. It does not contribute to that declaration of righteousness. The contrast in this paragraph, verses 13 to 17, is between promise and law. Something can be given to us, one writer says, by promise or by law. 
but they cannot be in operation simultaneously. And this is the important point. Law and promise belong to two different categories of thought which are incompatible. One is black, one is white, one is left, one is right, one is hot, one is cold, one is north, one is south. Promise is in one category. That's where we're to be. Law-keeping is in a very different category. That's where we cannot go. The language of law, one writer says, is you shall. It demands our obedience. But the language of promise is I will. It demands our faith. Law is saying you shall do this. You shall not do that. And demands our obedience. Promise says, I will. And it demands our faith. What God said to Abraham was not law. He did not say, obey my law, Abraham, and then I will bless you. What he said to Abraham and says to us, believe my promise of blessing you in Jesus Christ. Promise is an important aspect of our lives, isn't it? Of our society. Consider it for a moment. Yesterday, King Charles made promises to defend the Protestant faith, to serve the nation. He made promises. Promises which were given to him, demanded of him. That he had to keep. But sometimes our promises are purely of grace. If I promise the children to provide a question sheet on the sermons every week, that's a promise of grace. It doesn't depend on them being here every Sunday, it totally depends on my promise. I won't receive any more money if I do this or don't do this. I don't have to make this promise. It's purely a promise of grace. It's not dependent on them attending or filling it in or getting the answers right. It's purely a promise of grace. As we think of salvation and being made right with God, this is the area we're to be in. We don't earn it. We don't work for it. We don't keep God's law to achieve it. Purely of God's grace. In Jesus Christ, we are declared righteous. Now the apostle makes that point which is known to us, believed by us, acted upon us, by us in this paragraph by looking at the promise given to Abraham in Genesis that he would be the father of many nations. What he's trying to answer is how was that going to be fulfilled? How was Abraham going to be the father of of many nations, the spiritual father of many children. That's the question that we're thinking of in this paragraph. And the answer is 
by God's grace, not by people keeping God's law. We want to think of the facets of the promise, of the fulfillment of the promise, and of the father of the promise. Let's think, first of all, of the facets of the promise in verse 13. In, in, the, in the text here, you see the definite article in verse 13. The promise. This is a special promise, a significant promise, a fundamental promise for the promise. God made many promises to Abram about many things, but the supreme promise is the one that the apostle is looking at. And the promise was that he would be the heir of the world in verse 13. Or in verse 17, the father of many nations. Think of these phrases. What is it God is promising Abraham? Heir of the world. Father of many nations. Heir of the world in verse 13. What a promise this is. Here is Abraham. A man from outside of the land of Palestine, from the the city of Ur, devoted to a pagan god. He's a new convert, newly called by God. A wealthy, famous businessman within his city. And God comes to this man, who had just been a pagan worshipper. A new convert finding his way. A new believer and gives this man of considerable wealth and ability this promise. You're going to be the heir of the world. What a promise that is. But but what does it mean? Leon Morris explains the term well as the family of faith that Abraham would beget the heir of the world in the sense that there would be many followers of him throughout the earth who would experience spiritually what Abraham experienced. That, As we'll see, that experience is that they, like him, would be declared righteous with God. The phrase father of many nations in verse 17 conveys the same idea that God promises Abraham that he would have many children, not just literal children, physical children, but spiritual children who would have the same spiritual experience as him. Just as our children bear the likeness of our parents, their their nose perhaps is the same, their their cheekbones, perhaps their, their gait as they walk, it reflects their parents. So Abraham's spiritual descendants would reflect his experience in this regard, that they, like him, would be made right with God by faith alone. Abraham had physical children, and from those physical children, nations came, the Israelites, the Edomites, the Ishmaelites. But this promise that he would be the heir of the world, that he would be the father of many nations, was not about his physical descendants. It was about those who, like him, 
would have this spiritual experience of being declared righteous by God. The facet of this promise. Wanderlust syndrome is a, a, a desire, a hunger for us to travel. And perhaps some of you have experienced that. Maybe when you were younger, you just longed to travel and you, you went round Europe on the train or you traveled round America or down the West Coast or, or the East Coast. You just had this compulsion and desire to travel. And I think within most of us, there is this desire to go away, to travel, to see other places, and it helps us. And it helps us not only mentally and psychologically and emotionally, but it helps us spiritually to, to see the world and to recognize the fulfillment of this promise given to Abraham that the church of Christ is universal that we have brothers and sisters in other denominations, in other continents, who are also spiritual descendants of Abraham. That they, like Abraham, and they, like us, have been made right with God by faith in Jesus alone. And surely it's important for us to know about them, to pray for them, to follow their experience, to enter into their suffering and their trouble. Here is this promise, this foundational promise given to Abraham. You will be the heir of the world. You will be the spiritual father of many nations. Think secondly of the fulfillment of the promise in verses 14 and to 16. And this is the, the main point that the apostle is looking at. How was this promise fulfilled? This glorious promise, this incredible promise to Abraham at that time. He shows us how it wasn't fulfilled and then he shows us how it was fulfilled. Firstly, he says it wasn't fulfilled by law-keeping in verse number 13. That he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law. It didn't come by these spiritual descendants keeping God's law. By them trying their best. By them following the commands of God. That's not how we are made right with God. And he gives us two supporting reasons for that assertion. Firstly, faith would be useless. Secondly, the law-keeping brings us into trouble. Firstly, faith would be useless in verse 14. If it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, then faith is null and the promise is void. We cannot believe in Jesus and try to get to heaven by law-keeping. If we're committed to law-keeping to earn our way to heaven, then we cannot depend on Jesus. We're not depending on Jesus for our salvation. Megan didn't turn up yesterday at Westminster Abbey, did she? And her reason was that she couldn't have 
a foot in, in both camps. She couldn't be in the royal family and committed to that and then pursuing her own interests and business in America. She had to be in one or the other. And this is the point of the apostle here in verse 14. If it's the adherence of law-keeping, if that's the way to earn our entrance to heaven, then we can't be the way of faith. It's either one or it's the other. And the second reason he gives us for it not being of the law is that the way of the law-keeping brings us into trouble in verse 15. The law brings wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. All of us are fallen. All of us are, are sinners before God. But the point the apostle is making here is when we bring law into our life, then we realize the wrong that we're doing. People in the, in, who have no knowledge of God's law written down and clearly stated they are sinners before God, they, they need Christ, but that they do not have the clarity of the law to show them their transgression. If you drive up the mountain road in, in Newton Ards here, uh, way up uh, to the end of the mountain road where the tarmac runs out, uh, there's a big sign stuck on the end of a barn, private property, no trespassing. And there's a law. And you put your toe a millimeter beyond that sign. And you know that you're transgressing because of the sign that's there. And so it is with God's law. When we try to earn our way to heaven using God's law, it shows us where we're fall falling down. The sins and failings of our life. The way of law keeping exasperates and increases our transgression and brings us wrath. So this is the negative. We cannot earn our way to heaven because we're turning away from faith if we try to keep God's law for salvation. And that way of keeping God's law, it brings judgment upon us. The positive he sets out is the way of faith. Abram being the heir of the world, Abram being the father of many nations, is by these spiritual descendants believing in Jesus Christ. Verse 16, that is why it depends on faith. And again, he gives us two reasons why it's got to be by faith and not by our law keeping. One is so that grace, the grace of God, is preserved. It is by faith, he says, in order that the promise may rest on grace. Grace gives, faith takes. Faith's exclusive function is to receive. What God's grace offers. The way of faith for salvation and being made right with God protects the grace of God, the giving of God, the freeness of God's salvation in his son, Jesus Christ. Barak comments, God's plan was made to rest upon faith on man's side in order that on God's side it might be a matter of of grace. 
The origin of God's promise to Abraham that he would be the heir of the world was by grace. Abraham didn't earn it. He didn't merit it. The origin of that promise of him being the heir of the world was by grace. And the realization in our lives and in many nations' experience is also of grace that we are made right with God by faith and so by grace through Jesus Christ. So this is one reason why it is by faith it preserves and protects the gracious working of God. And the second reason in verse 16 is the certainty that this promise will be fulfilled, that it will be guaranteed to all his offspring. If it was dependent on our law-keeping This promise would never be realized. We know from the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, our first parents, in a perfect surrounding, innocent and upright, could not keep God's law. So this blessing, this promise could not be fulfilled by law keeping. It must be. For it to be realized, for it to be certain, be by grace. Perhaps you're going to put in a new kitchen. And you know, yeah, the, the, the confident DIYers will, will get the tools lined up in the garage, check, check that all the, the batteries are, are charged up for the, the Bosch drill uh, to be able to, to fire in those screws. And then you, your wife puts her arm around you and says, you know, dear, you know, that, that last project you did didn't go so well, did it? We should maybe call in the experts and get the professionals uh, from around the corner to come so, so that, that the job will be done right. You know, I've got to cook here. I, I spend time here. I enjoy b- being in here. We need to get the professionals in here to do this right. To have the certainty of the realization of the plan. The expert is required. This is his second argument. It's by faith. So that the promise will be certain to all of his offspring, guaranteed to all of his offspring. If it's dependent on our law keeping, the promise would never be realized. But because it's dependent on faith, which rests on God's grace to us in Jesus Christ, the promise is certain and will be fulfilled. A parent might say to their daughter, If you pass your transfer test, I will take you to London. Another parent might say to their daughter, who's sitting the transfer test, I'll take you to London in the summer. The one promise is based on law, the other on grace. The second parent doesn't have to make the promise. It's not a reward For work done, it's not earned. It's a promise of grace. And it's great for us if we can grasp this, lay hold on this. Because we can understand God's power as we see it in creation and we'll hear of it on Wednesday evening. We can get God's holiness from the Ten Commandments that we learn and we wrestle with day by day. But perhaps we struggle with the grace of God. 
It was something that the people of Jesus' time struggled with. They got his power in the miracles. They understood his wisdom. But his grace to the godless, they struggled with. And the apostle is is emphasizing this point. That we are made right with God, not by our effort, not by law keeping. But by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. If you're not yet a a Christian, this distinction has been set out really clearly for us. It's not by law. It's by grace. And this is not the Bible taking us down a road which is a lot harder and a lot worse But this is the Bible taking us down a road of peace and hope and assurance and forgiveness. It's steering us away from the wrath the writer speaks of and from the guilt the writer speaks of. That's the way of law. It's not the way of salvation. The way of salvation is the way of grace. If you've been trying to go to Cumber uh, recently uh, off the, the dual carriageway to Dundonald, Uh, They divert you away down these twisty roads, these narrow roads. It's a nightmare trying to get the cumber going that way. The the diversion is a a road which is far worse than the road that we normally go. But here, steering us away from law-keeping into the way of faith and of grace is a way of love and mercy and life and salvation and is to be taken by us. Thirdly, the father of the promise. As we think of this great promise, the heir of the world, the father of many nations, this promise that our experience will be that of the same as Abram's experience. Our question is then, what was his experience? If we're going to be his spiritual descendants, in what ways are we going to follow him? What did he do that we'll do which makes us his spiritual children. And verse number 17 emphasizes this for us. In the presence of the God in whom he believed was the way of faith, the way of trust, the way of commitment to the promise of God and grace which at the very center of it has, as we know with our biblical theology, the Lord Jesus Christ through whom the nations are being blessed. Abraham believed God. And that is how we are to be his spiritual descendants. The verse teases this out for us, isn't it? The God who gives life to the dead in his own circumstance, his own body, his his wife's body. The end of the chapter emphasizes it refers to Jesus Christ in verse 24. To us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. This is the God in whom we believe. The God who gives life to the dead. We we trust in him, this God of power and this God of redemption. And then the verse says, 17, calls into existence the things that do not exist. 
The God who did this at the the beginning of the world in creating the world out of nothing. The God who was doing this with Abraham and, and the nation that he would form. The God who does this in calling in his people. Who calls into existence the things that do not exist. Abraham believed God. The God of power. The God of goodness. The God of salvation and redemption. And in that moment of faith, he was declared righteous by God. Not by law keeping, but by trusting in the redeeming God. The king has had a wonderful model for his life, hasn't he? In the example of his mother in her devotion in her sense of dignity, in her fulfillment of her role of service to the nation. And we have a wonderful example here of Abraham being made right with God. He believed God, the God of power, the God of redemption, the God of promise, the God of grace. He put his trust in this God and we are being called to this Today, I still laugh at the time I was down on the Helen's Bay sand recently and freezing cold. I couldn't imagine how cold the water was, but some of our kids were paddling in the water and two strangers came down the beach with their dog and they began to egg me on. Come on, get into the water. There's your kids, get into the water. And here we are. Considering the example of Abraham, we're being urged and pleaded with and exhorted by the apostle, follow him, do what he did, turn away from the, the way of law keeping, embrace the way of grace and faith in Jesus Christ. In that moment of faith, we too will be declared righteous.